0: Welcome to this episode of Sleep Health with Dr. Alison Bentley, that's me, and with this episode is the first episode in a small series that we're going to be doing on children's sleep or pediatric sleep disorders to give it kind of its formal title. This particular episode we're going to be talking about babies and how they sleep. We know that out of all the things that mothers worry about when babies are born is firstly let's keep them alive because that's important, but it's feeding and it's sleeping. Those are the two big things that mothers worry about, partly because they're going to affect the moms significantly. So let's get into the conversation about baby sleep. And we'll start with what should happen, like what normally happens with babies. So we know actually that babies sleep when they're in the womb. So it has REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep has been recorded while babies, before babies are even born. So we know that they sleep in the womb. And I think everyone who's been pregnant, every woman who's been pregnant knows that there are periods during the day when babies are quite quiet and periods when they're quite active. And it's possible that they're sleeping during those quiet periods. When babies are born, it's a big event. I mean, let's be honest, a big event for the mom, it's a big event for the baby. And... From that point on, babies sleep and they sleep quite naturally and they get into a cycle within the first three months. You know, often I get asked by pregnant women, like, what do I have to do in the first three months to make sure that my baby will sleep well? And my comment is always, you know, in the first three months, you'll be grateful if you have a shower and brush your teeth and actually eat three meals a day on the same day. So please don't worry about what you have to do in those first three months. Just enjoy your baby. Just get them to sleep when they're tired. Often they will fall asleep while they're being fed. Let them fall asleep because nothing really happens in the first three months. But we do know that in the first four months of a baby's life, that they will get into a rhythm and that rhythm might be two hours long. It might be three hours long. It might be four hours long, but the rhythm is having a feed being awake for a period, and then having a period of sleep, and then being awake, and having a feed, and having a period of being awake, and then having a period of being asleep. So that cycle will just run 24 hours a day. It's different for different kids. Some kids have more difficulty in those first couple of months, and we'll talk about that a bit later. But here we're talking about the average baby, the normal baby who gets born, who doesn't have any problems in the first three months. They will just run on the cycle, and it's pretty much just going to run. But around three to four months of age, that's when the circadian rhythms or the 24-hour body clock kicks in. And so the fundamental changes happen there, which are important for sleep. And that is mainly that the gut starts to rest at night. So what that means is during the day, I'm sure many of you have experienced that, during the day, your gut is active, you feel hungry, like sometimes every hour and a half, sometimes every couple of hours, but you feel hungry and you need to eat. But you also know that if you wake up during the night, you don't feel hungry. You might want a glass of water, but you don't really feel hungry, but you feel hungry the next morning. And you kind of go, how do I manage to last for five or six hours at night without feeling hungry and an hour and a half during the day? And because that is physiologically, your gut is resting at night. And so that kicks in at about three to four months of age. And so ideally, what should happen in babies is that they go to sleep at, let's say, 7 o'clock at night. And usually, up until that time, they'd be waking at 10 o'clock for a feed and up at 2 o'clock for a feed. Let's just pick those times so we have some reference times. And because now the gut is resting, they wake up at 10 o'clock and they're not hungry. And so they go back to sleep again. And they only wake up at two o'clock because now they are a bit hungry by that stage. Wake up at two o'clock, have a feed. And then within a couple of weeks, they drop that feed as well because the gut is now resting and they've got a little bit older they've grown up a little bit. And so within about six months of age, most babies at six months of age are physically capable of sleeping through the night purely because they don't need food. So the gut is resting, they don't get hungry, and they just manage to sleep through the whole night. So I did say they were physically capable. I didn't say they would. So they're physically capable, not necessary that they would be able to do that. Because the real important thing about doing that is the baby has to be able to wake up at night, be completely confident in the fact that they can go back to sleep again and then go back to sleep again. Now I'm just going to go a little bit through the normal kind of pattern that occurs with sleep because once they're sleeping through the night, we can then focus on the daytime naps because those become naps separate to the night sleep because that's now a big chunk of sleep that's happening at night. And the naps are going to change as they get older. So we're just going to deal with that because otherwise there's no other time to deal with this. So what should happen between six and eight months of age? By eight months of age, most babies are having three naps a day sleeping through the night, having three naps a day. Each nap is about 45 minutes long, and the gap between the naps is a standard amount, about two and a half hours, two and a half to three hours. And it becomes very easy then to kind of structure the day because you know exactly how long baby's going to be able to stay awake for before they need to have this 45-minute nap. Now, the 45-minute nap is really important because what it indicates is the sleep cycle that the baby has. And that sleep cycle is happening at night as well. So if you take an 8 month old their cycle is 45 minutes long. At night, there isn't an eight-hour continuous piece of sleep. There's a bunch of 45-minute pieces that are all kind of glued together, if that makes sense. And that night's sleep of 45 minutes means 45 minutes, a brief wake-up, Which is usually five seconds or 10 seconds, then another 45 minutes, another brief wake up, another 45 minutes, another brief wake up. So, sleep, even in adults, is not one continuous piece. It's composed of smaller sleep cycles. And this is really important when it comes to looking at the sleep problems that babies have, because it's all dependent on these sleep cycles. So, at eight months of age, three naps a day of 45 minutes or multiples of 45 minutes so babies will sleep 45 minutes or an hour and a half and then another 45 minutes another 45 minutes and then go to bed that all kind of moves and as baby gets older they're able to stay awake a little bit longer so initially, they might be awake for two and a half hours. Now they're awake for three hours. And if you continue to have the three naps, now our baby's going to sleep at nine o'clock at night instead of seven o'clock. And it's time to take away one of those naps. So we usually take away the afternoon nap at the end. So they have one nap in the morning, one nap in the afternoon, and bedtime goes from nine o'clock back down to half past six. Then on two naps a day, and that's about a year old. Some babies are earlier, some babies are later, but around that kind of time. Those two naps a day are going to stay, but again, that's going to get later and later because instead of being able to stay awake for three hours, it's now three and a half hours, and then it moves to three hours. So as baby gets older, they're going to be able to stay awake for longer and longer, which means again, bedtime is going to get later and later and later. And at about 18 months of age, if you allow them to have two naps a day, they're going to bed at nine or half past nine. Time to take away that afternoon nap. Have one nap in the middle of the day. Often needs to be pushed a little bit later so that baby can last until bedtime. Bedtime again comes back to half past six. And now there's one nap in the middle of the day, usually around 11, half past 11 in the morning to start with. Can be an hour, can be two hours. And the sleep cycle has now moved to an hour. So instead of being 45 minutes at eight months of age, it's now an hour at about a year of age, or rather 18 months of age. And that single nap during the day is going to stay until they're about three. Again, some babies give it up at two and a half. Other babies keep napping until they're four. Other parents go they have to nap, otherwise they're impossible by four four o'clock in the afternoon. That one nap during the day can stay as long as baby needs it. It's really important that we don't set times and we go, right, it's your third birthday, the nap goes away. That's not how babies work. It's not how you work. Everybody's slightly different. So that nap is there during the middle of the day. We spoke about bedtime in that whole process and the fact that it is going to change. I think the hardest thing that you can do for yourself as a parent is set bedtime at seven o'clock and it's going to be seven o'clock come hello high water because If you have a baby who needs that afternoon nap and they nap, for example, from five until half past five, they're not going to go to sleep at seven o'clock because they're not ready to go to sleep. They need to be awake for a certain period of time before they're sleepy enough to go to sleep. If you try to put them to sleep at seven o'clock in that particular scenario, you're going to sit and fight with them for an hour. And that is a total waste of time because they're not ready to go to sleep. Everybody gets upset. Everybody goes to bed upset and the whole kind of dynamics in the family are different. So babies who are 17 months old, let's just pick an age, who are going to bed at half past eight at night, do not know that that is illegal. They do not know that every other parent is going, that is the wrong time for you to go to bed. It's the right time for them and that's the more important time to pick. So we'd much rather have a situation that as baby is going through these 18 months with bedtime varying. Pretty much all the time because it depends how many naps they have during the day. It's much better sleep health-wise that we pick the right time for them as per their naps during the day and bedtime is a quick 15-minute process and they fall asleep quickly. That is much healthier than watching the clock because babies don't know what time it is anyway. So that's kind of the normal process. Around 18 months where they drop to one nap a day, life and bedtime becomes much more predictable. Except it's going to get later and later until the, about that three-year time when you kind of drop the nap and bedtime becomes much earlier again at half past six. Then we like to think that that's how it's going to be for the rest of your life, but it's not. It's just going to continue getting later and later, but much slower. So you kind of look at babies and bedtime gets later and later much quicker Again, then goes back to half past six, gets later and later, slower, goes back to half past six and gets later and later. And it's much easier as a parent to go with that flow than to try and set a particular bedtime. So that's what should happen normally. But I know most of you listening to this particular podcast are going, but that's not what happened with my kid. I know that. But it's important to kind of understand the normal pattern so that we kind of know what we're aiming for when we try and correct a sleeping problem. So how do sleeping problems develop? Two different types. One, you have a baby who never does that process, who does the every four hour kind of feeding process and just continues through six months, through a year, through 18 months, they're continuing to wake four times a night to be fed or three times a night to be fed. So there are babies who just never get it right. And then there are babies who get it right, who do start dropping the feeds at night. And then it suddenly reverses and they suddenly at eight months, are now waking up three or four times a night. Usually that particular type of sleep problem is instigated or caused by an event. And that event could be something like getting ill, getting severely ill, going to hospital, traveling, particularly across time zones. So often there's a situation where baby is about eight months old and you go, now's the time to go and visit parents or grandparents in Australia or somewhere else. And it blows the sleep completely out of the water. Even traveling to Cape Town for two weeks. If everything is changed, if you're staying with relatives, often that can create a sleep problem. Baby comes back with a sleep problem. So let's look at what a sleep problem looks like. Like, how do you know that your child has a problem? And your child does not have a problem. Let's start with that. Your child does not have a problem if they fall asleep breastfeeding, for example, or on a bottle, and they then sleep through the night. That falling asleep on a bottle is not a sleep problem. It is just the way that they fall asleep. We all have a way that we fall asleep. So we might, as adults, We might go to the bathroom, we brush our teeth, we get into bed, we read a little bit, we kind of turn on our side, we cuddle our pillow, or we get our legs just so and we kind of do that and we have a little meditation thing that we do in our head and that's how we fall asleep. Everyone has a little routine. Falling asleep on a bottle is not a disaster. It is a disaster and it is a problem if baby falls asleep on a bottle and then is demanding another three bottles during the night after the age of six months. Because we can, we know from the previous conversation, we know that at six months, they do not need food at night. And if you give food at night, that is not about the feeding anymore. It's not about the need for feeding. It is about the need for the feeding to help them fall asleep. So the kind of sleeping problem looks like, but there are multiple variations of this. It looks like child goes to sleep okay, but usually with some kind of crutch. And the crutch is always someone to touch or something to suck. That's the kind of crutch that requires a parent. Okay, So something to touch can be a blankie. And if it's a blankie, great. You don't need to be there for that. But if it's patting, if it's stroking of their head, if it's being held, if it's being rocked, if it's lying with them in bed, those are all kind of touch crutches which depend on you. If it's something to suck, that ranges from a dummy to breastfeeding to a bottle with all kinds of stuff in it. might be milk, it might be rooibos tea, it might be green tea, it might be juice, it might be all kinds of things that are in that bottle. What's really important is a sleeping problem develops because the child needs something external to them to be able to fall asleep with and that something needs you as the parent. So those are the two components. They need something, and that something needs you. So, for example, they can't get a bottle on their own at night, or you touching them is always dependent on you. Now, Often parents kind of go, it's my fault that they need this crutch to be able to fall asleep. And I'm going to tell you, no, it's not your fault. As I said, the first three months of life, you really are just surviving with children, with new babies. And you're kind of trying to understand them as to their personality. You're trying to understand their needs because they can't tell you what their needs are. And so when baby cries, you tend to go, okay, is it a nappy? Is it a feed? Is it a sleep? I'm not sure which one of those it is. And often babies will fall asleep on you. And often they will fall asleep being fed. And that is just how it happens. And the majority of babies who fall asleep being fed or being held by you will go on to sleep well. So what we know is about 75% of babies, no matter what you do, are going to sleep well. 25% of babies are not. And they're going to develop a sleep problem. And often it's because baby has made a decision in their head. So they might have had, I don't know, a sore tummy, a headache. We will never know what started this, which made it difficult to fall asleep. And because you knew that they needed to fall asleep, you kind of went, I'll help them fall asleep. Maybe they need some help. So I'll pick them up and I'll hold them on my chest and I'll help them to go to sleep. But by holding them there, what they did, and it's really important to not be guilty about, not feel guilty about this. What your child did was go, Oh, that's easier. If I lie here, it's easier to fall asleep. And so they start requesting it because it's easier. And you kind of go, Oh, right. That helps that it's easier for them to fall asleep. So I'll do that. But what that does over time is make them dependent on that particular crutch to be able to fall asleep with. And again, it's not your fault. It's a decision your baby made. Okay. And we will never know why they made it, but they made it. And over time, what develops is an anxiety from your baby's point of view. Like if I don't have this, I can't fall asleep. And so now I'm anxious that it's not going to be there. So you can get into a scenario just to follow that train of thought where you have a couple and both of them want to be involved in baby's sleep, but the baby refuses to let dad help them fall asleep because it's mom who knows exactly how to hold them to be able to fall asleep. Becomes very ritualized, very kind of, it's got to be exactly like this, otherwise baby can't fall asleep. So a baby sleeping problem is all about a crutch that develops usually in the first four months of life. But again, let's talk about parent guilt. There are things that happen in the first four months of life that interfere with being able to fall asleep that you can have no control over. So for example, things like colic. We still don't really know what colic is, but it's just screaming, right? So if your baby has colic, they never fall asleep with this kind of relaxed attitude that babies have. Like you want your baby to fall asleep, just lie there quietly, close their eyes and just drift off. If you have a baby with colic, they never do that. They just don't ever have that opportunity because they're upset, they're uncomfortable. Whatever colic is, they always fall asleep with something, either sucking something or being patted or something. If your baby has reflux. So often we don't even know that babies have reflux, but if they do have reflux, lying down is a disaster for reflux because the minute you're upright, then all the acid stays in your stomach. But when you lie flat, it starts to come up the esophagus, the eating pipe, and cause pain. So, babies who have reflux don't learn how to fall asleep on their own because they spend every time they fall asleep, they're upright because you get told to hold them upright so that it doesn't burn. So, you hold them upright, and that's how they learn how to fall asleep. So, reflux, going to hospital in the first three months of life. Now, every baby is precious, we know that, but When babies go to hospital and there's a chance that they may not survive that, they become extra precious. And when you take them home, you do everything possible. Remember, your first job is to keep them alive. And so that's what you do. And so you do everything you can to make sure that they're okay. And in that process, they may learn to use a crutch to fall asleep. So lots of things. And I've mentioned before, travel. So if you suddenly travel, then you go to your parents' house, for example. So let's say you're in Johannesburg and you travel to Cape Town to stay with your parents' house. Well, you know, when you go to your parents' house, it's really important to prove that you're a good parent. You're in command. You know what's going on. You're okay with your baby. So if baby cries in the middle of the night, at home, you might just go in and go, shh, shh, shh. But when you're at your parents' house, you go, I need to quiet them so they don't hear that crying. So you compromise how you would handle this kind of situation. And in that compromise, baby might learn. Again, not your fault. Baby learns another way to fall asleep. So a sleep problem in babies is the same. So no matter what causes it, no matter whether they never learn to sleep through or whether their learning to sleep through gets interrupted or whether they sleep through initially and then it gets interrupted with some traumatic event that happens, the end point kind of looks the same. And so babies with a sleep problem, they all pretty much look the same no matter what the cause is at the beginning. And you know, that's kind of the same with adult insomnia. Adult insomnia can be caused initially by a whole bunch of things, a divorce, a death in the family, hospitalization, onset of a medical disorder. But when it becomes chronic and it's been there for a couple of years or or, or even months, it kind of looks the same. And it's all about anxiety about going to sleep. So in babies, the kind of thing that we see when we when we talk about a sleep problem, baby goes to sleep just fine, usually being fed or in a bottle or being rocked or something like that, and then they sleep for about three hours, and then they wake up, and then they demand some help to be able to go back to sleep. They cannot fall asleep on their own. You're very aware that they can't do it on their own, and they need something, and that something can be anything. It honestly can be anything, and baby will pick what they want. Okay, Just like you can give them an array of toys and they'll pick one and that's their favorite toy and that's the one they want to sleep with. And you go, why that one? Same thing with this. Why did they pick a dummy? Why did they pick patting? Why did they pick a bottle? But you get well-trained in this process as to exactly what your child wants. And so you will go in and you will give them what they want and then they go back to sleep again. And then depending on their age, they will sleep one cycle or two sleep cycles. So 45 minutes or an hour or two hours and they'll wake up again and then they need help again. And that process will then continue through the night. So you might be waking up three or four times to provide something that your baby needs in order for them to be able to go back to sleep. And it's exhausting for you because Baby cycle is not the same as your cycle to begin with. So your cycle is about an hour and a half, and theirs is an hour. So they're waking you up in the middle of your cycles, and that is makes it much more exhausting than if you were waking up at the end of your cycles. So that's kind of what a sleep problem looks like. Once it's set and once baby's over six months of age and once that is set, it's just going to continue going on. It's not going to resolve. So I have parents who tell me that they were told when baby starts walking that the sleep will resolve. I'm not sure how those two are connected at all. But it's not going to resolve because when baby wakes up at night and what they need is not there, they get anxious. They go, I don't have what I need to be able to fall asleep. I need it. And if it doesn't come, then they get more and more anxious and they never at any point go, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll just turn over and go back to sleep. They are never going to do that because that is not one of the things that they use. I talk about the list that children, babies have in their head of what helps them go back to sleep. And the list can include a number of things. If it's touch, it can include just being patted. It can include being picked up. It can include being rocked. The mother load is always going to sleep in parents' bed. That is always the best. Okay. So they have this range of things that might work. So at the beginning of the night, patting might work, but towards the end of the night by four o'clock, partly because it's very difficult for them to fall asleep at four o'clock and partly because parents are exhausted, they're in the parents' bed. So they kind of move up this list. For sucking, it might be a dummy at the beginning of the night, but towards the end of the night, it starts to be a bottle or something like that to drink. If they're extremely lucky, they get a bottle in parents' bed. So that's like everything all together. But it's going to increase. What is not on those lists at all as an option is turning over and going back to sleep on their own. So if it's not on the list at all, babies are not going to even think about it. They're not going to even consider it. And so the problem is not going to go away until there are about three usually around three. We're not sure exactly why, but around three, babies start to sleep a whole lot better. But most parents can't wait that long, particularly working parents, if you're not sleeping at night. And it's every single night, right? You never get a break unless you hand them over to grandparents for a night, and then you have a break. But it's a one-night break, but it's relentless, this this kind of sleep problem. And it doesn't resolve. So it does tend to get gradually worse. And there's always parents who go, it could never get worse than this. And I go, so are they going to sleep on the bottle in the middle of the night? And they go, yeah, it could get worse. So how it gets worse is that they wake up and they have the bottle and it doesn't work. Now they're awake for two hours in the middle of the night. So between two and four, baby is awake. And then they do manage to go back to sleep at four o'clock because by being awake, they have made themselves sleepier and then they're able to fall asleep. So it can always get worse. And it's generally just gradually gets worse. If they get ill, so tonsillitis or something like that, it can precipitously get worse. So they go from waking up twice a night, have tonsillitis, get better, and now they're waking up four times a night. So it can do that as well. Honestly, it's different for every single baby, but at the core, the problem is exactly the same. And that is baby wakes up, doesn't have the option of in their head that they are aware of, of turning over and going back to sleep. So you as parents, you need to handle this. Now, what's out there in the literature is varies on how to resolve this problem. Ranges from don't resolve the problem, just take your baby into your bed and sleep with them all night long. And that is an option. I'm not gonna tell you you can't do that. You do need to understand that there's a deal attached to that. And that is babies in your bed until they three. And that's fine. I mean, I think we must stop being arrogant and saying baby must sleep in their own bed. You can say that because you have another bed, but the majority of the world, honestly the majority, 80% of the world, has one room to sleep, eat, and live in. And so everyone sleeps on the same bed, and so there may be three or four people sleeping in the same bed. And they sleep quite well, and so it's not right to say that that's wrong. It just isn't wrong if the majority of the world are doing it. Those of us who have money are lucky enough to have a separate bed for our child. And so you are welcome to have your children sleeping in your bed. You're welcome to have everyone sleeping in your bed, but everybody needs to sleep. So I cannot sleep with babies in my bed. I'm too conscious of the fact that they're there and I don't sleep at all. So for me, it's just not an option, but it may be an option for you. Please don't think that you have to move your child out of your bed because of what society tells you to do. You're welcome to all sleep in the bed. The other option is that everyone sleeps in their own bed because that's the only way that everyone sleeps well. And where does baby need to sleep? As I said, in your bed. If they have a cot, their own cot, the cot can be in your room. That is not going to create a sleep problem. The cot can be in a separate room. Mothers always are concerned when they come home from hospital, though they're not going to hear their babies. You do. You're now attuned to it. You'll wake up with the slightest cough. I remember my first daughter, when she came home from hospital, we had her in our bedroom. It was kind of cold and she was in our bedroom and we could just heat the one room and every time she coughed or muttered or turned over or moved at all I was awake and within two nights I said to my husband she needs to move out I can't sleep I just can't sleep with her in the room so it's it's a personal choice as to where they are if you're the is in your room that is absolutely okay it is different to them being in your bed It absolutely is. So they can be in a cot. They can be on a mattress on the floor. That is also fine. They can be in a room with somebody else. They can be in the same room as granny. They can be in the same room as their brother and sister. Putting children together in the same room, they often sleep better than they do in separate rooms. So there's multiple variations of this, and there's multiple ways to solve it. So some people say, don't even solve it. Just let it ride. Wait until they're three years old. On the other extreme is the controlled crying method. Now, when my daughter was born, she's now 36. So when my daughter was born, the only method that was out there in the literature was controlled crying. And that involves that you put them to bed or you put them to sleep and that you walk out of the room and you stay out of the room for five minutes and then you go back in for a little while, calm them down again, go out for two minutes and you slowly get less and less time in the room. What happens with children if you do that? I couldn't do it with my daughter. I lasted about two minutes and I said, this is wrong. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't, know. but she's not getting closer to sleep. Because what children do if you leave them in a situation where they have no tools to manage that, remember they can't go back to sleep on their own, is they just scream and they will scream and scream and scream until you sort it. And it gets much worse if babies are over the age of nine months. So when they can stand up in a cot, they can scream for an hour and a half or two hours. And it is relentless screaming. It is screaming at the top of their voices. I don't like that. I don't like doing it. When I discovered that I couldn't do it with my own children, that was the last day I ever told another parent to do it because I felt that one thing you cannot be is a hypocrite when you're giving people advice. So... I had to come up with another method, and I'll tell you about that shortly. So the controlled crying, there are people who say it works. As I said, it's quite traumatic for mothers and and for fathers to do it. In my experience, it works under the age of nine months. So if you have a very small baby and you can stick it out, I still don't like doing it. But people say it works. So it is an established method. Um It does tend to work. Downsides of it are that it is traumatic, is that often if you do it at bedtime, particularly after babies have just had a bottle of milk or have just breastfed, they're likely to vomit. And then you have that to clean up as well. So I don't particularly like it, but I do understand that people say that it works and, and adopt that kind of program. So for me, it was much more, I was much more keen on, let us teach baby what we want them to learn. And that is to lie down and go to sleep. So the way that I do it now is not the same way that I did it then. Hopefully you learn something, you know, in 30 years of doing this kind of thing. So the way that I advise parents to do it is not to worry about going to bed. I think that going bedtime should be a nice time that you have with your child. They often will have a bottle then or a drink at night. They will brush their teeth. As they grow older, things will be added and some things will be taken away. So you might have prayers if that's your particular belief. You might read stories to your children. You might all lie in the same bed together and read stories and have a nice chat about the day. And you're welcome to do that because bedtime is bedtime. It's separate to the middle of the night what happens in the middle of the night babies understand it's different and they will respond differently so when it comes to bedtime do whatever you like when it comes to bedtime but get baby to sleep at the right time for me what's most important the first thing you need to do is you need to put that process of just lying still and falling asleep on their own on the list because right now it's impossible it's impossible babies are not going to even try it you need to kind of force them to try it and it sounds very hard you know to say to force them to do it but they're not going to do it unless you make them do it so what I tackle is only the first time they wake up at night which is usually ten, eleven o'clock at night only tackle that point go in when they wake up go in do not give them the crutch so do not give them the bottle they do not need the feed at 10 o'clock at night they do not need a feed if you give them water they tend to throw that back at you and that's not what I want So you're welcome to try a little bit of water, but they don't need that either. Actually, they certainly don't need feed and to then work on a program to try and get them to practice falling asleep on their own. So it kind of comes in three phases. The first phase is them getting absolutely furious with you, screaming at you because you won't help them. Okay. You won't help them fall asleep. Now you you have people who say, don't look at them. Don't talk to them. No, no, no. Get involved. Please get involved talk to them, calm them down. I can tell you that if they're having a temper tantrum, none of that will work, but it makes you feel better because at least you're trying something. So calm them down, talk to them, let them have their temper tantrum. You know, we kind of go like we need to do something about this temper tantrum. You need to learn how to manage temper tantrums because they ain't going away. They're going to be there till children are four. So you need to learn how to handle them. Children are allowed to be frustrated. This baby now that you have taken away, this response or this help that you have given them, in their view, their whole life, you have been happy to do this. You have now refused to do it. They're entitled to be angry. So they're angry. They're desperate. They're frustrated because they don't know what to do. Walk them through that anger. Just be with them, say, I know you're angry, talk to them. (laughs) They don't understand you, but just talk to them. I know you're angry, you're entitled to be angry, it's absolutely fine, be angry. That anger will end. If baby is over nine months and they're able to stand up, part of the process is making sure they stay lying down. If they're under nine months, they can't move and they're lying down anyway. Over nine months, you need to lie them down. Now, it's really important that you don't play their game and you play your game. Your game is lie down and stay lying down. Their game is let me see how far I can get before they lie me down. Okay, so what that means is for you, what you need to do is lie them down and keep lying them down. So if they lift their head up, put it back down again. If they lift their bottom up, push that back down again. And you keep working very quickly with them so that they can't move off the horizontal plane. All the time, talking to them, I love you, but you need to learn how to lie down. You need to learn that when you wake up at night, stay lying down because that way is a better chance of you falling asleep. If you watch babies when they wake up, they wake up and stand up and they're standing up before they even know they're awake. And obviously it's much harder to go to sleep there. You want them to stay lying down. And with older children, it's significant PT. I mean, because they are furious and they're kicking and they are throwing their arms around and they are screaming at you. And you kind of go, just lie down. You need to stay calm. Just lie down put your head down, lie down there, just be horizontal because that's the first thing you need to learn. So the first thing is stop panicking. This is not the worst thing in the world. Stop panicking and lie still. So that's what we need to teach them. Sometimes your child is so restless and bigger, so particularly when they get to around 18 months or two years old, that it's a bit like pushing a lilo underwater. You kind of lie them down and they pop back up and they lie them down and they pop back up and they lie down and it just seems to go on forever. And sometimes it's easier to just gently put hold them down and say, just stay there. Don't keep popping up, just stay there. You'll feel them wriggling and trying to get up and you just go lie down. Say, be very calm, be very kind, but also be firm. Okay, and say, no, you need to stay lying down. If you work that process and you are work quickly with them, don't allow them. So what you mustn't do is allow them to stand up and then lie them down and stand up and lie them down because five minutes of that, they're going to start laughing at you because you're they're winning. They're winning this game. So you don't want that. So you just lie them down, work quickly, make sure they stay there. If you do that, the temper tantrum tends to be quite short. Now, look, temper tantrums are never short. We're not talking five seconds here. We're talking 15 minutes or 20 minutes of temper tantrum. But that is short relative to leaving them alone to scream, which can go on for an hour and a half. So relatively, you're never going to get a situation under the age of two and a half or three where you're going to be able to negotiate with your child to not get the crutch. They don't understand reward and punishment. They don't understand anything like that. And so they're just going to let rip. And, you know, that's it's a good thing in a way because your child is designed to keep themselves alive. That is their job. And so they will scream until they get what they want to make sure that they're okay. They don't care about the fact that you're not sleeping. They don't care about anything. They care about themselves only. And that's good because that's how they stay alive. So that's what their focus is. I need this and I want this and you must give me this or else I'm going to let rip. So manage that temper tantrum, go through the 15-20 minutes until they get to a point where it's more like an upset than they are mad. Okay, So they're upset and they're just crying a little bit. Now you need to be careful. So if they're crying, you absolutely can touch them, calm them down. We want them calm, so we don't want them crying. So if you can calm them down, calm them down quickly As soon as they start crying, start calming them down. So don't wait for them to ramp up to a particular level. If they start stirring and start crying, shh, go to sleep, mommy's here, pat, pat, pat. As soon as they're quiet, hands off. What you want to do in this phase is you want to calm them down, but whatever you're doing to calm them down, you don't want to do that to sleep until they are asleep. You want to do it just to calm them down, to get them into that space where they're now lying in bed quietly. Remember, that's what we want. We want them to learn to lie in bed quietly and just to drift off to sleep on their own. So the first job is to get them lying in bed quietly. So that's what this is. Shh, it's okay, mommy's here. Talking is allowed always. If you move from a point where you have to touch them to calm down to a point where just talking to them will calm them down. And so you go, shh, mommy's here. You go to sleep. I'm here. You will also get told, don't talk, Be very quiet. No, 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 talk. Baby knows you're there. If baby knows you're there, he can relax, and they're more likely to fall asleep if they relax. So just start the conversation. So be sitting there in the quiet and go, Shh, mommy's here, go back to sleep. Very calm, but just let them know that you're there. Let them see you so that they know that you're there, because you want to do everything possible to make them relax. Because in that zone where they've now been up for 40 minutes, maybe 30 minutes up in that zone they're tired all you want them to do is relax and if they relax they will fall asleep so you want to do everything possible to get them to relax in that situation of lying in bed and they will fall asleep that they do it by accident right not because they're planning to so three phases the mad angry phase which you manage then the sad kind of phase which alternates with the quiet phase and initially you'll have five seconds of crying and one second of quiet But that'll move to one second of crying and five seconds of quiet. Does that make sense? It gradually moves to a point where there's more quiet than there is crying. And the key point is as long as they fall asleep and you're not touching them and they're not sucking something they cannot get themselves, you're winning. You're in the win zone. That's what you want to have happen. And it's really a huge moment for you and for them when that happens. For you, it's a huge moment because you go, oh, they can actually do this if I help them with this whole process, they can actually do this. And for them, it's important because that first experience is now put in their brain as a little memory. Okay. So that's the first time they wake up at night. They will go to sleep, wake up at some point during the night as they would do normally. The second time they wake up, just do whatever you can to get them back to sleep again. We are not doing this again. We're only doing it once a night, the first time they wake up. And the reason for that is whether you do it once a night, or whether you do it four times a night, it's still going to take three nights to get this resolved. So don't inflict punishment on yourself when it's not necessary. Just do it once a night, the rest of the night, do whatever you like. Parents always ask me, aren't they going to get confused about what it is? No, they're not. Because this first three nights is not about a learning curve at all the first three nights is just putting this on their agenda at night, just putting it on the list that they have an awareness that it's possible. That's all we're trying to do with the first couple of nights. So second time they wake up, feed them if that's what you do. Third time they wake up, feed. heaven forbid, the fourth time they wake up, feed them, go back to sleep. Second night is going to look exactly the same as the first night. There is no learning. There is no less screaming. It's going to look exactly the same. So you do exactly the same. But If they manage to fall asleep without being touched and without the crutches, another little memory trace is put in the head. Third night, exactly the same as the first three nights. Do not expect it to get better because it's not. If anything, the third night is worse. I don't know why. I kind of call it like Custer's last stand. They kind of go, no, I am not putting up with this anymore. (laughs) Like we've done this enough. But just push through it. Because it takes three nights and three experiences for that memory trace to be in their head So that on the fourth night, when you go in the first time they wake up and you start doing it again, they go, oh, I have done this before. It's not something I need to panic about. I do know what's going on. I don't need to panic. And so it is a situation where you get lots of screaming or nothing. Okay, And on the fourth night, or if you're unlucky, the fifth night, when they wake up that first time, there's no screaming. They may be a little bit upset when you go in because they're like, "Ah," they're not sure what to do. And your job is to jump that first thing and go into that second phase and go, shh, mommy's here, go to sleep. And again, the quiet time is now longer because they're not anxious anymore and they fall asleep a lot faster. So you might go on the first, second and third night, you might have an hour to get them to sleep. Only half of that is drama. The last half is sitting there trying to decide what to do with yourself because it's taking your child so long to fall asleep. And this, the fifth night, you just have that second bit. So it's like 20 minutes for them to fall asleep. Again, the second time, you just feed them, go through the night. The sixth night or the next night, that 20 minutes cuts down to about 10 minutes. The next night, it may not happen at all. Or it may be a five-minute wake-up. But that's where the learning curve happens after they've stopped being anxious about the sleep once it's on the agenda at night, then they have a learning curve. And then within about four or five nights of that, that first time of the night, they don't wake up at 10 o'clock anymore. I don't know when they're going to wake up after that because they have now learnt what to do in that little gap. And so remember that the cycles are an hour long. So if they wake up at 10 o'clock, theoretically 11 o'clock they're waking up, but now they get themselves back to sleep. They might do it at 12 o'clock. They might do it at one. They might only wake up at two o'clock now. If they go to sleep at 8 or 7 and they wake up at 2 o'clock, remember, that's the first time they've woken up at night. They don't know it's 2 o'clock in the morning. It's the first time they've woken up. And so just do the same thing again. Really, the the whole program just works on you only tackle the first time of the night that they wake up. And we hope that the first time of the night gets later and later and later through the night as they learn at these different time points. I mean, I think you know that if you wake up at 12 o'clock, it's quite easy to go back to sleep. But if you wake up at four o'clock in the morning, it's a lot harder to go back to sleep. And it's the same thing for them. So there's different levels of hardness. I don't know if that's even a concept. Different levels of hard as you go through the night as to going to sleep. But gradually, what we would want is that they go to sleep at seven and that that first period of sleep gets longer and longer and longer as we go through the night. So there are lots of variations attached to that. But that's generally, children are sleeping much better within 10 to 14 days. And they're more comfortable. They're more relaxed. After that, what happens is going to bed becomes easier. Daytime naps become easier because they're not fighting against those as well. Everything just settles down and sleep becomes easier doesn't mean they're never going to have a problem with sleep again, ever again in their lives. They are. But at least now they have a normal baseline to work from. So now if they get ill, if they get tonsillitis, their sleep is going to be disrupted. They're going to have two nights of bad sleep. And then when the tonsillitis is better, they go back to normal, which was sleeping through the night instead of normal, which was now waking up twice a night. So they're now working from a different baseline, and you can pretty much insist when they're better that they go back to that baseline, that they go back to sleeping through the night. So the whole thing changes, okay, at that point, really as soon as they get over this panicking about sleep. But there are some nuances here. So what about the dummy? Now, I always get asked, what about the dummy? So the dummy is not a problem as long as they can put it in themselves, and that only happens at around nine months of age. If they are over nine months, I'll often get parents say, no, they won't put it in themselves. I have to put it in. Oh, well, guess what? Then you're not having the dummy if you don't put it in yourself. Like that is nonsense. Attach the dummy to them. Have a little clip that you put on right at the top of their vest or whatever they're wearing. A very short chain or ribbon that goes, that is literally the distance between that clip and their mouth, which is like 10 centimeters tops. That length. When they wake up at night, instead of you picking up the dummy, pick up their hand, start at the clip, run down the ribbon until their hand reaches the dummy. And often, as it reaches the dummy, they will pick it up and put it in their mouth. And the reason why they don't put the dummy in themselves is because they don't know where it is. So let them know it's in the same place every night, no matter what night it is. It's always going to be there. You start here, you run down, you'll be able to find the dummy. Honestly, within three nights, they're putting in in themselves and sleeping through. The problem comes in under nine months and you need to make a decision because they can't put it in themselves. You need to make a decision as a parent as to what you're going to do then. And there are two decisions to make. Either take away the dummy and ask them to sleep without the dummy or allow them to keep the dummy but understand that you need to continue to put it in. And if you do make that decision, and it's really your personal decision and nobody should tell you otherwise, if you make that decision, then what I would do is move baby into your room next to the side of your bed. So that you putting the dummy in their mouth is literally just leaning over the bed and sticking it in, not getting up, walking down the passage, going into another bedroom, putting the dummy in, getting back, and then having to try to fall asleep again. So make it easy for yourself. As soon as you notice that they're able to put it in themselves, train them to put it in themselves, again, by just using their hand instead of your hand, attaching it to them, and then then you can move them out into their own room if that's what you prefer. There are various ways to do this. And people kind of worry, aren't they going to strangle themselves on this little ribbon? Well, the important thing is to make that ribbon short. They do not need a meter of ribbon. That's not how far their mouth is away from this clip. It just literally needs to be that length and not longer than that. And that length is never enough to go wrap around their neck and cause any kind of harm. So just a lot of common sense. How Exactly how long does this need to be? Measure it. That's how long it needs to be. Okay. So that's the deal with the dummy. What about sleeping in parents' bed? How do we get them out of the bed? Do we move them gradually out of the room? You can do that. I can tell you that moving them out of your bed, wherever you move them to from there, you will have the same drama as if you move them to another room. So it's not going to change the drama, but if it makes sense for you, for them to be sleeping on a mattress next to you, if that's easier for you, then that's what you do. What do you do with twins? So when you have twins and one of them has a sleep problem, and the other one doesn't, tackle the one with a sleep problem. Separate them. If you don't have enough rooms in your house, put the child in the kitchen at night. Nobody cares. They don't know they're in the kitchen. Put them in the kitchen so that you can manage them and the other one can sleep. If you have two rooms, then put whoever's going to manage the sleep problem with the sleep problem twin in one room and put the other parent and the good sleeper in the other room. Move things around. It's it's literally for two weeks and then you can move everybody back. But do what you have to do to be able to manage this process. Be careful if you have other people around you who live around you. It's one thing to do this process if you're in your own house in your own garden, and you have space between the houses. It's another thing completely if you're an apartment block and you have people who live around you and your child is going to be screaming at night. That's one of the reasons for only doing it the first time of the night, which is now 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at night. Please go speak to all of your neighbors. Tell them what you're doing. You don't want social welfare to be called on you because you are abusing your child in the middle of the night. Go and tell them. I think you'll find a lot of sympathy and a lot of people are prepared to help okay. Who and, and But as long as they understand what's going on, they will be okay with that. So as I say, lots of kind of nuances in this program. And I honestly cannot cover all the possibilities that are going to be out there. Every time I do a talk like this, I kind of go, I think I've covered everything. And then I get a question. I go, no, I didn't cover that. I didn't even know that was a thing. So there are multiple ways you can do this. Understand that your child can be sleeping anywhere. As long as it's not in your bed, if you don't want them to sleep in your bed, it is not a binary thing in your bed, in their cot. It is not that they can sleep on a mattress. They can sleep on the floor in somebody else's room. They can sleep anywhere. They can sleep in a cot in your bedroom. That is okay. So there are multiple ways to do this. What we want at the end of the day is we want a child who is able to go to sleep comfortably without anxiety that they are able to fall asleep, that they can manage their sleep during the middle of the night, that they can sleep through the night, wake up refreshed the next morning, ready to eat. I think that's another really important thing to talk about, is that if baby is having bottles during the night, they are not hungry when they wake up in the morning. And often feeding during the day becomes a problem for two reasons. Firstly, they're eating all night, and so they're not hungry when they wake up, and so they don't have a big breakfast. If they have a big breakfast, that sets up snack lunch, snack, dinner. If they have, a, if they start off the day with a snack, then it just carries on snacking the whole day. And often parents will say their appetite is terrible. Part of the reason is because they're eating at night. The second reason is because they're tired. So a child that has a sleep problem is tired during the day. They don't often express that tiredness. Remember, it's hard for them to fall asleep. Adults who are tired during the day, you know, we just kind of like fall asleep everywhere. We kind of put our head on our hands and we're dozy and we do that kind of thing. Understand, this is a kid who can't do that. They don't know how to do that. If they knew how to do that, they'd be able to fall asleep. So they respond to sleepiness with anger, with running around, because when they get sleepy, they learn how to get rid of that feeling. So instead of going with it, they get rid of it really up until the age of eight, nine or 10, if they get sleepy move. That's how they manage sleepiness. So you will have a two-year-old who will be sitting doing a puzzle, for example, gets halfway through the puzzle, gets up and runs around and starts screaming. You go, what the hell happened? What happened? Like, what why, what was that? I can tell you what happened. They got tired. It's a sitting down activity. They felt sleepy and they went, oh, I know how to fix this. Get up and run around because it goes away. So that's what they do. And they do that with eating as well. They sit down quietly. They're starting to eat and they go, no, I feel sleepy. I need to get up and walk around. So they don't sit long enough to eat a good meal. So all of that is kind of driven into this. If you're trying to get rid of the feeds at night, what you can't do is take them all away at once. So for example, in the control crying every all all night through kind of thing, because you're going to be sitting there going, I'm sure they're starving because they haven't had these bottles now. They haven't eaten during the day in preparation for the starving. And so often you kind of bail and you kind of go, no, I need to feed them. By only taking away one feed at night, all you're doing is asking them to go an extra two hours and you will feed them. And then the feed gradually gets goes later and later through the night until they're sleeping the whole night. Understand if you do have a child that needs to feed at night, they do not need that biologically. They don't need the nutrition. They're using it to be able to fall asleep. So I hope that was all helpful. I hope you understand how sleeping problems develop in children, why they continue, why they don't spontaneously disappear, and how to manage them. Once you get to about three years old, it's a totally different deal because the three-year-old child understands and can be involved in the process of resolving this this sleep problem. And so my favorite patients are three-year-old boys who have never slept through in their lives before, because it's very easy then to say to this three-year-old, right, here's what we're going to do. When you wake up in the middle of the night, you're going to stay in your bed and you're going to call me to come to you. You're not going to come to my bed. You're going to call me and I'm going to come to you. And if you lie still in your bed and you don't fight with me and you don't shout, I'm going to stay here with you until you fall asleep. So we are not going to be on your own, but you're going to lie in your bed and you're going to go back to sleep. And if you do that, you can have Smarties for breakfast. Okay, or you can have ice cream or you can have whatever your heart desires for breakfast because little boys will walk over hot coals for something illegal for breakfast. And you know what? They'll do that and they will lie still and because you keep on reminding them. Now, remember, if you stay lying still, This is what you're going to get for breakfast. It's got to be something immediate for breakfast. It cannot be, we'll go to the park on the weekend. It can't be that. They can't see that far ahead. It's got to be something for breakfast. They will try. And they will try really hard to get that done. And so they will lie quietly and then they will fall asleep because they're lying quietly. And every time they wake up at night, you go, remember, if you lie quietly, you can have X for breakfast. So we use reward and punishment at that age because they understand it. Now, they're involved with the whole process. They're working too hard for what they want in the morning. Those kind of children, I mean, we take three-year-olds who have never slept through in their lives before, and they're sleeping through in a week, purely because they have now learned. There's no drama. They're not screaming, because we've said, if you scream, you don't get it for breakfast. What's, what kind of rewards do we use? As I said, for little boys, usually something to eat that's illegal. But I have had children who love to go to the maid's room to have breakfast with their domestic worker who looks after them during the day. And mom doesn't want to do that because shame, she has him the whole day and she doesn't want him to have him for extra. And I kind of say to the mom, how much are you prepared to pay the maid for that extra time? And she goes, oh, true. Yes. And just by doing that, just by giving them something they really, really want in the morning, they will work hard for that treat. Girls, unfortunately, not that prone to doing things for Smarties or ice cream or that kind of thing. Often they want more intellectual rewards. That might be stickers. So often we will take girls and we will take a simple A4 piece of paper. We will draw the background that the stickers go on and the rule is that you can put two stickers on the sheet um, the next morning if you lie still at night. It's basically a star chart. It's just a cooler star chart. I mean, a star chart is boring, really. If you can put dinosaurs on a page, well, now that's cooler. If you can put ballerinas, if you can take Sophia, or you can put Paw Patrol, or you can do Bluey, then that's much cooler. So it's really, they will work for a reward. You need to know what the reward is for your child in the morning, that they're very clear that it's a reward for something that they do. You need to be able to sit there with them until they fall asleep. I always recommend that you have a little conversation with them to check if they're asleep or not. So for my son, the conversation, when I did this with him, the conversation was check, check, checking. And he would say, good, good, gooding. And I would say that every couple of minutes. And there would be a point where I would say, check, check, checking. And there was no response. And then I knew he was asleep. Because otherwise you sit there and you have no idea if they're asleep or not. And so you need to know. So create a little conversation. They love that conversation because they know you're there. They know you're not going to sneak out before they fall asleep so they can relax. Again, we're kind of doing everything possible to make your child relax so that they can fall asleep. So having this little conversation with them assures them that you're still there, assures them that you're not going to leave until they fall asleep, and so they can relax and fall asleep faster. So the deal when you get to older children in this particular scenario, when they haven't been sleeping and they get to around the age where a reward and punishment works, and you know this because it gets to a point, if you don't eat your dinner, you don't have pudding. If they understand that, they're ready to do this kind of sleep program. So it's different when they're older. There's no need to put up with the temper tantrums and the drama. We can behaviorally modify that i mean we need to be honest it's bribing them you know but it works as far as changing their behavior is concerned and allowing them to not panic about this change in behavior that you're asking them for so two different age groups two very different processes that you do but still the same kind of concept teach them how to be comfortable lying still and being able to fall asleep within themselves because falling asleep is something you do inside yourself It is not an external thing that somebody does for you and you need to just have the space and the time and to be able to relax to be able to do that. So I hope this was all helpful. As I said, this is the first episode in a series on children. We'll be looking at primary school children in future and at adolescence in separate episodes. So thank you for listening and I hope it was helpful.